out of Oklahoma City, you're listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family. For more information, go to goodtrashmedia.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where people gather around a table and we discuss the films that will never be discussed in the course of Film Studies course, sometimes because no one watched them. This week's case in point is The Manchurian Candidate, directed by Jonathan Demme and starring one great Denzel Washington, inaugurating our uh, Denzel Washington Marathon. That's right, hashtag... A, B, W, D, always be watching Denzel. That's what we're doing right here, right now at the Good Trash Undercast, brought to you by Good Trash Media. Now, without any further ado, let's identify ourselves so people know who's talking to them. Who are you there in the recliner, sir? My name is Arthur Gordon, and a boy's best friend is his mother. <laughs> That's a oh, different movie, but oh that... boy. But, oh boy, that works in so many ways. Um, to my left, sir, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and uh, the podcaster always dies. Sweetie, it's necessary for the national healing process. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. That's excellent. And my name is Dustin Sells. In podcasting, there are always casualties. And uh, we'll see who will make it to the end of the show this week as we examine uh, this great little film from one Jonathan Demi. Now, to, pr- to warn you, I guess, to give you some sort of preview as to what's about to happen if you've never tuned into the good trash genre cast before we are not and yeah, we are not well, what are we not we're not a review show right that that is what correct we're not. Okay. we are not we are an analysis show correct the last do, i checked yes we do that not the other and um analysis probably would indicate some spoilers right yeah, and this is a pretty spoilery movie. Uh, there's 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 uh, lots of twisties and turnies. Yeah, it's a very very plotty driven uh, psychological thriller. So uh, what we're gonna do though, to give you some reprieve, if you have not seen this film, The Manchurian Candidate, or its 1962 original, of which it is a remake, uh, we are going to give a quick thumbs up, thumbs down review following a synopsis from the voice of the cinema. After that, we which we will avoid spoilers, in, but after that, we'll play a game which might involve a mild spoiler of this film or other films. Films in its orbit, probably not in this particular week's case. Then we will move into analysis. It will be business time. There'll be a cue of the musical variety, which will give you some indication that that is what is happening next. So there is your warning. Enter in if you dare. So without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema. Let's hear a synopsis of The Manchurian Candidate, the 2004 remake. In the midst of the Gulf War, soldiers are kidnapped and brainwashed for sinister purposes. Okay, well, I guess that's about as much as you can say. Yeah, there's a a more detailed synopsis that uh, maybe we'll do uh, when we get into spoiler territory, just uh, in case you want to go ahead and hear our thoughts without actually watching the film, because that is pretty vague. Yes. And I guess for good reason. Yeah. So there you go, dear listener. Now you know at least a little bit of what the Manchurian Candidate is all about. Mr. Dalton Stewart, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, What do you think of this movie? Do you like it? What's your experience of it? I am going to go ahead and say I enjoyed it quite a bit. I have never seen the uh, original uh, Frank Sinatra vehicle from 1962. It's not bad. Uh, But for whatever reason, uh, this film was compared unfavorably to it upon its initial release. Uh, that's all that I really recall. Now, it, it does seem I, I did some some reading just to see what the reaction was. There were some defenders of it at the time. 
Um, it doesn't even seem, though, that there's been that big of a shift on it. It just seems like um, the defenders of it um, have continued to hold it up, but it do- doesn't really seem like it's ever caught an, uh, a following like after the fact. I don't hear a lot of people uh, singing the praises of the Manchurian candidate, um, although they should, uh, because I think it's quite good. I, I enjoyed it a lot uh, without getting too deeply into spoiler territory, I will say. I think the film does a good job of making Denzel out to be an unreliable narrator at times, but never over pushing the point, always keeping you in his, his, his court, always keeping you on his side that something is amiss. But I think the film does a very good job of, uh, of helping you feel his paranoia and, and helping him feel that he's not always sure he can trust himself. And that, that's really how his, his work as a, an unreliable narrator functions really in the film is not really to keep the audience on their toes. It's to keep keep him as a character on his toes. And then by extension, the audience, because I, I feel the film does a pretty good job of putting us in Denzel's shoes throughout the duration. Uh, also, a lot of love, I think, needs to be given to Leah Shriver's uh, performance, which is spot on. Absolutely perfect. I love every bit of his performance. Uh, Meryl Streep's performance is also fantastic. Really, our three leads here are all... Um, really at, at at peak levels. I mean, I would say that these are three great performances from three great actors. Um, and if that alone does not sell you, I think Jonathan Demme does a really good job of, of knowing where to put his camera, knowing what parts of the story are interesting, knowing what to focus on. Uh, he and his team have done a, a really stellar job. There's some, some music cues that feel a little off towards the end, uh, and I think they're on purpose, and I really liked them. Uh, I, I was a big fan of some of the music cues at the end of this movie. Um, I really like uh, something that Demi has always been good with, something he excelled with uh, in um, uh, Silence of the Lambs, which he also directed, is his use of close-ups. Um, really, really tight close-ups on faces and, and just letting you sit in a moment. Um, and those were some of the things that really stood out to me in, in this film. But uh, overall, I think an incredibly effective and timely um, bit of uh, political thriller, paranoia thriller, um, fun. Excellent. Well, thank you for Who's paranoid? Did somebody, did somebody tell you that about me? No. Honey. Did somebody say that? No. Okay. I was just I was checking out the paranoia. You're hey man, you're only paranoid if you're wrong. That's <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you think? Do you like uh, the Manchurian Candidate? What's your thoughts on this film? Uh, yeah, I uh, I did get quite a bit of enjoyment out of it. Um, uh, I'm not going to reiterate much of what uh, Dalton said. The performances are good, uh, are great, I should say. Uh, I honestly think this is one of my top Denzel performances. I think he is he's doing something so great here because he is such a confident man he's got so much charisma and he's able to parlay that into this weak paranoid uncertain portrayal that is so i i i guess against type but at the same time those those moments of bravado when he does use them here uh when they're normally that of a very you know um confident or you know not necessarily arrogant but proud man uh, here he's able to use those same bursts in a, to reaffirm that paranoia and almost reaffirms the doubt in him as that unreliable narrator, as Dalton was mentioning. And it's a very nuanced performance that he's doing with a lot of the same tics that were recognizable and are familiar with with Denzel. But he, in the context, he's able to shape him a different way mm-hmm. and give us a different idea of who he is and what he's doing here. And I think it's a, a grand performance from Denzel. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think Demi um, and Denzel, they work together, uh, and they use Denzel's charisma as a performer against him yeah. and to the film's favor. Yes. It, it makes it so jarring to see Denzel, like, ha- have this weight on his shoulders. Yeah. Uh, and so it's 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 very good, and uh, and uh, I I really like that. There's also some great direction, some great editing, cross cutting. Uh, Demi's doing some great stuff where we're seeing. Uh, there's a scene early on where we watch uh, a Denzel eating uh, some ramen noodles, and then that cross cuts, and we see um, Lee Schreiber eating uh, ramen as well in his penthouse, uh, which is juxtaposed with. Uh, uh, Denzel inside of his tiny cramped uh, hoarder of an apartment where he's got all these newspapers and all these documents and he's very uh, and it's another thing I like about this movie uh, when we first meet Denzel he seems very put together he seems very stoic and he's got this very well cut military attire he's got his yeah. uniform he's very clean cut uh, and we see this first uh, juxtaposed with Jeffrey Wright uh, when he meets him but then we see this kind of going into his apartment it's it's not the apartment of that man that we saw uh, giving a speech, which I think is a fascinating thing. And then we, you know, cross cut that with the very open, very empty penthouse, or I think it's a hotel suite actually that he's in, um, for Leah Schreiber, uh, kind of reinforcing that kind of loneliness that he's got going on. And so there's a lot of great kind of production work, mise en scene kind of stuff happening here that Demi's just mastering, I think, uh, which adds so much to the story, so much to the themes, uh, and lets us in without actually having to tell us what's going on. Uh, the story, for the most part, I I told you guys off air when we were texting that I, I, I like the movie. Uh, then when we get to the third act and things start happening, I love that third act. I love what happens there. Um, and there's just a, a masterwork uh, of what is suspense. And suspense is the idea of uh, we see the bomb, the audience knows the bomb is there, and now we're waiting for it to go off. Yep. Uh, which is juxtaposed, with, you know, in contrast to a thriller where... You know, we don't see the bomb. It just goes off and shocks you. Yeah. And so that there's a master class of suspense at work here in that third act. Uh, that being said, I feel like the film's opaque in many ways because Demi doesn't give us much at all mm-hmm. until that third act. We're really like, we know there's a mystery. We know some stuff, but he's not giving you more. And he's really keeping you on the hook and reeling you in very yeah, slowly he, throughout. He, he pretty well tells you things right when you need to know it. Yeah. And uh, if you see it coming, good for you. But he, he's he's just like, I'll, I'll let you know when it's important. Uh, and, you know, for that, I, I, I think it's super solid. Uh, I, I did see this, I think, in 2005. I started watching it, maybe. And, and I remember being like, oh, this is, what is this? Like, I was not into it at all. Uh, but rewatching it here, I thought it was super solid. Uh, really kind of crisp. Uh, really kind of uh, flowing well. It's got a good pace, I think, for the most part. And I'm pretty pretty pro on this one. I think it's a I think it's a good time. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I also like this movie a lot. It has been a much maligned movie for the most part, and I, I'm going to go ahead and say it. it's massively underrated. It's it's a very very good little political thriller. It is perhaps uh, suffering from an issue of timing. We talked about this a little bit off air, uh, airing in 2004 when the war on terror uh, is just sort of heating up, and uh, public opinion had yet to turn really against the war at that point. I, I, and I think that does sort of work against the film. But that being said, it's it's great. The performances are great the music is great the direction is great i there's what else can i say uh about those kinds of things regarding the film other than i i had a really good time watching the movie i do i i will say this controversially i think it is a better film than the 1962 original that it's it's it's, it's definitely a more interesting film you're the timeless. only one that has seen it 
So that that you will not receive argument from yeah. us. Well, yeah, but controversial in terms of like the cine world no, yeah. and you know the inter because I, I yeah. hope somebody besides us listens to this. Uh, yeah, I probably I, won't. I did my best to try and yeah. find somebody um, going to bat with Demi's version over the original, and I couldn't find it. But I suspect you're not the only one that feels that way. Yeah, I, I will say this: um, uh, Angela Lansbury is uh, Meryl Streep's character in the original, and she's real good. I mean, it, it compares. Yeah. yeah. But Frank does not compare to Denzel. Uh, What's his bucket does not compare at all to Leif Schreiber, and his name will forever and always be What's his bucket. I think that was one of the most common uh, kind of critiques. Was a lot of the reviews I read say that Schreiber was really just kind of lifting that performance from. Uh, the original, and that no. he wasn't really adding anything new to it. That's interesting because one of the few things I did see that uh, from the time that directly uh, mentioned uh, Schreiber um, said this thing that stuck with me was um, just mentioning that he's a character that always seems so uncomfortable in his own skin. Um, and I, I took that, I, wa- I read that about halfway through the movie, and I really took that into the rest of the film with me. Uh, and there's these scenes where he's with Denzel, and it's like the only time he gets to kind of open up. And um, I I think it's a really special performance. Again, I haven't seen the original, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, I don't care. <laughs> no, I mean it's it is, it's a good performance, and I think yeah. I mean you have to take this on its own. You can't compare it to the original. Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. So it's it's very solid. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Demi's close ups are great. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we meet Al Melvin in that very first side long, and he does something different with it. He is evolving. It's not quite the same sort of uh, close-up looking directly and intently in the camera kind of close-up that he's always using in Silence of the Lambs. It's a, it's a slightly different kind of feel to it. And uh, this sort of uh, uh, glancing uh, view of various characters, especially, again, this uh, initial meeting of Corporal Al Melvin. Speaking of Al, Mel- Speaking of Al Melvin, I could have done with a lot more Jeffrey Rush. Um, yeah. Jeffrey, Wright. Jeffrey Wright. Sorry, Jeffrey <laughs> Rush is the, the Australian man, British yeah, man. Yeah, he would Who not cares? belong in this film. Jeffrey Wright. Oh, man. Jeffrey yeah, Wright. Was, I wanted to see more. He was great. Let's, let's, talk, let's see. We've got Jeffrey Wright. We've got very young Anthony Mackie. Uh, baby Mackie. I was so <laughs> mad there wasn't more of him in this movie. Pre-departed so, Vera so young. Yeah. Anthony Mackie looks so young. Even uh, uh, Leah Schreiber's brother, Pablo Schreiber, who uh, notable for season two of The Wire, uh, a whole bunch of other. He's now on uh, American Gods and Stars, an yeah. actor that I like a lot. Um, uh. But uh, it was fun. I was like, "Oh shit!" The uh, the other Shriver, uh, a holdover from RoboCop, Miguel Ferreira. Yeah, we did. Uh, I was I <laughs> lost my shit when I saw Miguel Ferreira show up. I was like, "Hey, uh, it's a RoboCop connection," yeah. and he's slamming his hand on the table, and he's doing a good job with what he's doing. I mean, yeah. it, it, there's there's nothing wrong with this movie. That's what I want to say. Yeah. There's, there's no pacing problems. There's no music problems. There is nothing but a very fun, uh, very entertaining uh, thrill ride of a psychological thriller. And as to whether or not that is enough to elevate it to another level is a conversation for later in the show. Absolutely. So without any further ado, we want to talk about the conversations that we're having right now and how that conversation can be held with you all via those magical means of social media. Dalton, where's that happening at? Oh, well, uh, dear listener, if you are inclined to discuss the film a Manchurian Candidate with us and are, you know, want to give your own thoughts on how, how likely and possible it is for a multinational, a billion-dollar global conglomerate to 
insidiously infect and hijack uh, politics in your country, um, hit us on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, we'll be there to talk about that. We can also be found on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash GTM. And as always, we would love it if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to these programs on um, your um, featured uh, podcast gathering app, be that uh, the iTunes one, be that Stitcher Radio. Uh, do that rate and review thing. You could do that for this show. You could do that for the only other um, content we have for your ears right now from Good Trash Media, and that's uh, the Cast Beyond the Wall, Caleb Masters' weekly recap of Game of Thrones. And uh, I, I will be uh, doing that before the end of the season, so uh, you can listen for me over there if you, if you like me. Uh, I can't imagine why you would, uh, but if you like me and you like Game of Thrones, I might be over there talking about that. I'm always wrestling with uh, my many opinions on that show. So, um, yeah, that'll be fun. I'll be over there. Um, yeah, that's that's social media. Do the thing. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Now, it is time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. <laughs> that's right, dear listener. We are back, and we're back with our game. Our game this week is our favorite underrated films by auteur directors. Uh, that's right, favorite underrated films by our tour directors brought to you by The Manchurian Candidate from 2004, The Manchurian Candidate from 2004. Many people, including myself, could say that it's an underrated film from our tour director, Jonathan Demme. <laughs> yes. I didn't think I was going to get through Th- that. Those are great many words in only one breath. Yeah, no, I was pretty uh, pleased with myself. Well, I'm proud of you also. So we're going to talk about, you know, great film directors, people that, you know, names you'd know, names that you would recognize, but one of the sort of underseen works. Uh, from those particular directors. I'm going to shoot to you first, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What is your first selection for your favorite underrated auteur-directed film? My first choice is (laughs) from (laughs) the great British master Stephen Frears, and it is The Hit, starring Tim Roth, which is a very good movie. That's a very good character You know how when you said The Hit, I thought you were going to tell me it was a hit, and then go on to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I the did aptly titled The, the Hit. hit. <laughs> but it is not a hit. <laughs> it was not. Tell me about this movie, Arthur. Uh, this is a movie about hitmen and uh, prisoners uh, on the way to execution. And and then all those nice, in style uh, ideas of morality. It's very in yeah. It's uh, got a great performance from um, uh, Terrence Stamp in the yes. lead. And then J- yeah. J- Terrence Stamp, John Hurt, and Tim and a young Tim Roth. Yeah, yeah. I love this movie, it's Arthur. It's super solid. Jim Broadbent shows up in oh, it as yeah. well. Um, but it's, it's if you like, just people just talking and just, uh, you know, an action movie without all the action mm-hmm. and all the uh, character work. It's great. It's got great performances. I love, love, love Tim Roth so much. He's so good. Uh, and here he's, you know, he's just killing. He's so young and so, so virile yeah. as an actor. And Terrence Stamp, man, he yeah. just, oh, Terrence no Stamp's level. got soulful eyes, man. Uh, but it, it, it's kind of a move away from those kind of melodramas, the big melodramas that uh, I think Frears was kind of known for. Some of the other work, you know, My Beautiful Lingerette and things like that. Uh, but uh, the hit is just, I, I think it's one that people need to see. It's on the Criterion, so it's easy to access now. Um, but if you're really into just kind of people sitting around asking life's questions and what's right, what's wrong, and you know how to proceed with life, it's one you should go to and check out. Yeah, definitely a movie for people who who like um, In Bruges, as you already mentioned, and uh, also Sexy Beast uh, with oh, Ray Winstone and Ben movie. Kingsley. Yeah, it's that's also a good movie. Yeah, if those if those are uh, right up your alley, you're gonna you're gonna dig the hit. Definitely, uh, I like that movie a lot. 
Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what's your first selection? My first selection is a, a little scene, um, but I think it's got some love from the people that have seen it. A Sam Raimi film called A Simple Plan, uh, starring Billy Bob Thornton and the, the dearly but dearly but um, oh wait, the dearly departed but always missed. Um, oh my God. Paxton? Jeez, Bill Paxton. My brain just had a, a huge fart. Sorry. Um, we Apparently actually didn't miss him that much. I miss him very much. <laughs> Do not question my loyalty to Bill Paxton. We actually just, um, uh, not that many months ago, had a, a bit of a uh, fare thee well to Bill Paxton. Um, we, we talked about some of our favorite Paxton work on the show not that long ago. Uh, and this is up there for me. I think Simple Plan is a really, really solid film. Uh, again, him and... Um, You've got Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton, and um, it, it's Sam Raimi basically doing the Coen Brothers, which works out way better than you would think. Um, it also takes on some kind of vaguely uh, uh, Macbethian shades. Uh, Bridget Fonda, her her character, um, Bill, pa- she plays Bill Paxton's wife, and she does slowly. Um, she starts out, you know, being like, "What are you doing, man? Like, uh, don't get yourself involved in this tomfoolery," and very slowly uh starts to be like hey man you done got us into this mess you better get us out of it and um it's it's uh, it's fun and twisty and does lots of interesting things with uh, uh the corrupting influence of of capital um and uh, yeah i like it a lot it's good good performances gary cole shows up he's he's quite fun uh, solid cast from uh you know and a director not known for that kind of movie a smaller uh, crime fellow again a small town uh you know crime uh, comedy of errors and it's 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 like a it's like a fargo with a comedy turned down a little bit um so yeah i i'm, I'm going to strongly recommend a simple plan from sam raimi awesome thank you very much for that mr dollar my first selection is from a horror great director wes craven uh we know him very well for the friday no we don't nightmare I, I caught myself doing it. The Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and then finally the Scream uh, trilogy. Yay. Uh, we, we do know uh, quite a bit about his work with uh, Last House on the Left, and The Hills Have Eyes has a certain influence in terms of exploitation cinema. But uh, a film he made that no one ever talks about is The People Under the Stairs, which is yep. a lot of fun. We got Ed and Nadine from Twin Peaks, Ed running around in a gimp suit with a shotgun trying to chase a little African-American boy from the uh, South Bronx get and it's got racial overtones and there's no supernatural element to the horror at all it's about how racist scary people are very terrifying i uh so i rented that movie when i was a kid yeah uh me and a friend went to the video store we rented it and we went and watched it with his family and we didn't actually know what it was we thought it was like one of those kind of like gremlins cute kind of uh movie monster things no No, it was not that and it was incredibly awkward i remember uh watching uh that scenario because we were very young probably under 10 uh and yeah it was i i fondly kind of i don't remember much of the movie but i remember uh, i was way too young to see it and it was very uncomfortable i remember being roughly your age first time i saw it as well and yeah and i think it's almost appropriate to watch it in an inappropriate time uh this particular film because it is very much about childhood kind of fears as well uh also this sort of racial uh aspect to it makes it very interesting for various reasons yeah the uh podcast the next picture show which is part of the uh the film spotting family of podcasts they did a uh, they have this uh ongoing show where they uh, uh they talk about a uh, new release 
by talking about a film that um, helped influence it or a, a film that you can see the connective tissue. Uh, and they did uh, this year's uh, hit Get Out with People Under the Stairs. Oh, yeah. Good yeah. call. Yeah. They, they, it's a really great show. If you haven't checked it out, I really strongly recommend it. It's the next picture show. They do all kinds of fun stuff like that. Uh, they did Alien and Life uh, this year. Uh, they just did um, their most recent episode was uh, The War for the Planet of the Apes and the original Planet of the Apes. So uh, the summer is... Are they connected? No, yeah, a little bit. Okay. Uh, but they also did Okja and Babe recently. So nice. yeah, they're, they're all, They've got all kinds of fun stuff going on over there. Okay, very, very cool. Well, that is my first selection. Arthur Gordon, do you have a second selection? I do. Um, the, I, I feel bad with this one because the director is extremely problematic as a human being. Um, but the movie is just really good, and he is a talented filmmaker. Uh, and it is Roman Polanski's Carnage. Uh, starring Jodie Foster, John C. Riley, Christoph Waltz, and uh, Kate Winslet. Now, I haven't seen this. Tell me about this movie. This is about two couples um, whose children get into a schoolyard incident. Yeah, somebody, some does, somebody does a hit at school. You never do a hit. Ask the McElroy brothers. You yes. don't do a hit. Um, and so it's the entire movie is set in the apartment of one of the couples. I believe it's Waltz, Waltz's apartment, but I can't remember. I might be wrong. And it was, um, is, are Waltz and Jodie Foster a couple or Kate Winslet? I don't remember. It's been so long since I've okay. seen it. Uh, I remember the year it came out, you were a really big fan of it. Uh, yeah. It, it, it is a solid, it is just a master class in acting. Like, it is four great actors acting well. Uh, but it, essentially, these two couples meet to discuss mm-hmm. what happened, the incident, and then it just spirals downhill as they start pointing fingers at one another and who's at fault, and it just uh, is used into chaos. Uh, but it's just full of great performances. It's got a quick run. It's 120 uh, hour and 20 minutes, so it's real quick, real tight. Um, but it's it's just if you if you if you're a fan of acting uh, and just kind of tense, tight situations, it's it's it is a solid movie. And I think it just kind of got. We're we're talking about a director whose uh, reputation uh, far precedes him uh, now, but uh, he, he does good work. There is that, and it's very hard to cope with that sometimes. Yeah, and I, th- I think the uh, the best thing to do in those situations is uh, if you can't get over it, that's fine. I mean, that's yeah, you that does not that is fine, and if you can deal with it, that's fine too. That doesn't make you a bad person for watching a movie made by a bad person. Uh, and if uh, the fact that a piece of art was made by a bad person completely turns you off, that's fine. It doesn't matter how good it is. Yeah, yeah. fuck that person. You don't have to engage with their their stuff. Uh, and that, I think that's okay. There, there's room for both answers. I think. Excellent. I I appreciate that little bit of comment as well there, Dalton. So, Dalton, what is your second pick? So, this is kind of a twofer. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say Catherine Bigelow um, and her films Near Dark, which I know I've mentioned on the show before, and Strange Days, which I think I've mentioned on the show before, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, I actually prefer Near Dark to Strange Days, but they're both really kind of undersung works in her her filmography. Um, Near Dark, unless I'm mistaken, is her very first film, and then um, Strange Days is right around the middle of her career, kind of like between doing the action movies that she was doing in the 90s and like right before she starts kind of leaning more into the kind of stuff she's doing now. Um, She followed up Strange Days with the submarine movie. I can't remember if it was K-19 or U-571. I always get them mixed up. Um, I think it's K-19, but it's not important uh, because I don't really care about those movies. I'm talking about these movies. Strange Days features uh, Ray Fiennes as a detective uh, investigating a crime that involves uh, VR and living people's memories. Um, it is not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination. It's way too long. It's like two and a half hours long, but it is visually really fun. 
Um, all the performances are great. It's got a really good sense of its tone, which is kind of weird in, in a lot of fun ways. Uh, in the near dark, which uh, I know for a fact I've sung the praises of, another great Bill Paxton performance, but it's also got um, a pretty fabulous Lance Henriksen and... Um, Oh, my gosh, the actress whose name I always forget, but uh, frequently showed up in a lot of James Cameron stuff, both as the foster mother in Terminator 2 and as Vasquez in um, Aliens, um, a, a really great actress. Uh, she is also in the film, and it's uh, a contemporarily set, uh, contemporarily set in a then-1984 um, southwest United States, and there's vampires. Uh, there, it's, a, it's a vampire western set in the, uh, the mid-'80s. It's awesome. It's great. Well, I... Are you sold? I'm in. Yeah. I'm I can't t- believe you haven't seen this movie. I, I really can't either. There's yeah. a lot of movies, though. Uh, there are a lot of movies, but those are two picks for me that um, I think uh, just it felt right to pair them together. Yeah. Well, I, I also have kind of a two for, for one director kind okay, of thing going on here. So uh, Marty Scorsese is a big yeah, yeah. deal, and he makes a lot of movies. But two unsung gems within that are 1999's Bringing Out the Dead. And uh, 1994's uh, The Age of Innocence. Age of Innocence, I don't think I need to say a whole lot about it. It just sort of gets overlooked because the other ones are so stellar in their reception. Age of Innocence has got Daniel Day-Lewis. It's got Winona Ryder. It's about uh, 19th century America and politics and politeness and what it is to do things in terms of responsibility. So that, that, that I think it and it's a great costume drama mm-hmm. and so there there's a there's a lot to be appreciated there but it doesn't get seen as much and discussed as much as sort of the major uh sort of arcana within the uh the tarot deck that is uh <laughs> martin scorsese's films that was a weird metaphor to push way no too i like long. it though yeah no it's, it's all right you took us somewhere we needed to go uh, uh, but also in terms of those minor arcana is uh bringing out the dead from 1999 starring one nick cage it is a uh, paramedic a, uh, a guy's an emt who's traveling around he's haunted by the ghost of those he fails to save there is a subplot fighting this sort of red death kind of heroin the thing that's going on and it's set as an easter tale as he is uh, going from death to in the tomb to finally resurrection and so uh, scorsese's catholicism and spirituality and the same ideas that he's working out from mean streets are being worked out yet again in the film bringing out the dead and you know uh crazy john uh, john not john nicholas cage <gasps> it's good times john cage is also crazy but for different reasons and also wonderful but um, we're gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. Yes, in an ambulance. It's exactly the movie. <laughs> I'm into it. Arthur, you got any more, buddy? I, I do have one more that I'll, I'll mention, and this is one I've sang praises about before. Uh, but I want to mention uh, Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. I feel yeah. like uh, yep. I feel like everybody knows Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard, and not enough people are talking about Ace in the Hole, uh, which is a solid film uh, with a skating indictment of journalism and the media. And that whole circus that plays out in those kind of uh, tragic events when they do take place and everybody's looking to get the story and get paid um, uh, with a uh, great performance with uh, Kirk Douglas. Uh, and it's uh, just a good time. He's he's such a good actor in that you just don't really like him. And he's very capable of pulling that off. And it's uh, well-directed. And I think uh, I think it should be uh, spoken about in the same... Maybe not in the same breath as maybe Double Indemnity, but it's, it should be up there with Sunset Boulevard because it's good. I, I agree. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Um, Dalton, you have any more? I do. Um, I, I could just say everything the Wachowski sisters have made following the original Matrix film. Uh, but for the sake of specificity, I will go ahead and say the film Speed Racer, which we have talked about on the yeah. show. Uh, Arthur and I are, are real big defenders of Speed Racer. Uh, and really everybody uh, sitting around these mics right now is big defenders of the Wachowski's later work. Um, Dustin and I are, are, will both go to bat for the Matrix sequels. Uh, I know all three of us will go to bat for Cloud Atlas. Um, I will even um, 
I will even defend uh, Jupiter Ascending. Uh, I, I like a lot of things that it's doing. It's definitely probably their weakest film, but I think there is a lot to like about it. Uh, and the television show Sense8 is a masterpiece, and uh, I will hear no ill things said about it. Uh, I understand that there are some pacing problems, and uh, I, can, I can live with these things because it's such a, a deliriously lovey show. Um, so that is my final pick. It is the later day works of the Chelsea's, but specifically the candy coated um, madness that is epilepsy fueling. Oh, it's so good. Speed racer. So as you are defending uh, the uh, later work of a uh, set of directors, I'm going to defend the early work of a director. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a rule for me that has been a long standing rule that I'm going to go ahead and break. Because it's not been a rule for me. It's been a rule for someone else. I'm going to violate the Fincher rule going all the way back. Um, Alien 3? Alien 3, yes. Gasp! I like Alien 3 a lot. And I also want to mention the game starring Michael Douglas. Double gasp! And uh, these movies are really solid. They're really fun. Alien 3 is a great uh, horror movie in space, uh, sort of of action thriller. It it does sort of capture bits and pieces of both uh, Ridley Scott's and James Cameron's uh, earlier works in the uh, franchise. And it does interesting things with... uh, Sigourney Weaver, and it just—it's a lot of fun, and it's a movie I really dig. And it, it really does set up uh, Fincher's visual palette for the, yes. the rest of his career. And then the game, just the game, guys. It's—it's great. I mean, it's—it's—it's it's not something that's going to be as fun to watch after you've watched it once. But man, that first watch is great, and that second watch is a lot of fun because you kind of know what's going on, which may be a good way to describe the Manchurian Candidate if we came right down to it. Yeah. And since we have come right down to it, I guess it's time to get down to business. And we're back, dear listener, with that business, and that business is, as always, analysis. Now, we want to get into the spoiler territory, I think, right away, because we want to talk about what happens at the end of this film, I think. And well, we'll ha- I let's... guess we'll real quickly give the, the listener a much clearer synopsis of what's going on, because uh, that initial one was pretty vague, and uh, I think we liked it that way, but let's go ahead and... Uh... The voice of the uh, the dollar theater will uh, give you a little taste of what's actually happening in this movie, if I might. <laughs> when his army unit was ambushed during the first Gulf War, Sergeant Raymond Shaw saved his fellow soldiers just as his commanding officer, then Captain Ben Marco, was knocked unconscious. Brokering the incident for political capital, Sean Shaw eventually becomes a vice presidential nominee while Marco is haunted by dreams of what happened or didn't happen in Kuwait, as Marco, now a major, investigates. The story begins to unravel to the point where he questions if it happened at all. Is it possible the entire unit was kidnapped and brainwashed to believe Shaw's a war hero was part of a plot to seize the White House? Some very powerful people at Manchurian Global Corporation appear desperate to stop him from finding out. Thank you, Apprentice on IMDb.com. A Prentice. Yeah. I'm like Robert Prentice Shaw. Shaw. Sergeant Robert Prentice. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Woo! 
Uh, uh, some MK Ultra ass shit's going on. Yeah, so it's good. Here's the thing. So what we got, we got a couple things going on here. So we we discovered that uh, Shaw has been sort of set up as a mole of the Manchurian candidate, Manchurian candidate, the Manchurian Global Corporation conglomerate, whatever it is that they are. We also know that uh, uh, Bennett uh, Marco has also been implanted with this. And what ends up we discover is a plan to assassinate uh, the president and play or the president elect while he is the nominee for vice president. This being mm. Mr. Shaw, and then he would be president and then be the puppet of both his mother and of the Manchurian Global uh, Corporation. So that's what's going on in terms of sort of this big narrative thing. But the, the big shift here between the 1962 original and uh, this current film is that it is a it's a communist threat from Manchuria, right? This mm-hmm. part of China and in North 1962. Korea. So that's that's part of what's going on uh, there with that. And then this is uh, dealing something with the uh, the Gulf War. So I just want to talk about what we think about uh, the 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 use of villains here and then the use of, of, of global scares what do we like this change and transition what do we think it says uh, about this particular moment here well i mean yeah obviously on on this show i mean i think that goes without saying now i i will say this um there there is a legitimate um discomfort uh, with china that's not purely racist in 1962 i mean that certainly didn't hurt uh, well it's mostly a russian north korean thing in the film but yeah yeah but i mean it is manchurian communists yeah. um th- there is a, a legitimate con- uh, concern going on with the cold war um i i think what makes this film work so much better is that it, it is much more insidious when the plot is coming from within your own country um now his his mother brokering a deal with a foreign power um, while definitely interesting politically speaking, um, <clears throat> is mm-hmm. uh, is a little like it's more ethically like black and white. I think it it makes uh, for a much more compelling and complicated film for it to be a a, a threat to democratic sovereignty within uh, the borders of the United States. I think it's much more interesting. I think the the threat of corporations is much more. Um, likely than a, a foreign power, if only for the sole reason that uh, there are a lot of uh, multinational conglomerates that have more money than uh, several small countries. Um, that that makes you a player on the political stage. I mean, the bad the bad guys of this movie are the Koch brothers, uh, for all intents and purposes. I yes. mean, it, that that is the the thread that we're given. I mean, it, it is people with more money than you can physically comprehend. Uh, and I, I honestly think that that makes more sense uh, because money can often be a much more powerful motivator than ideology. Um, and and I, I think that makes the film more interesting. I also I really um, love that the the core villainship is given to Meryl Streep. I think it, it makes for a lot more fun uh, narratively, dramatically. She's the better villain than any you know suit representing uh, Manchurian Global is ever going to be. So in terms of the the larger villain, but also the villain we interact with, I think the film makes very wise choices um, in, in presenting something that's uh, a little bit more insidious and sneaky. What I really like about what they're doing, uh, what Demi's doing here in this film, is that uh, it's it's that Harry Potter thing where Voldemort's the bad guy in the first three books, but we never see him. Yeah, he's he's not there. We know who he is. We know what he's done, but we never see him. We just know his name, and that name begins to strike fear into the audience. And I, and what Demi does here is he's constantly doing these kind of 
uh, background mentions of Manchuria. If you're watching, the, if you're listening to what well, you don't even see it, if you listen to the newscast or if you see like a stock ticker or something like that, you'll see something about Manchurian. And he's planting these kind of subconscious seeds for this dark corporation. And we know it's important because it's in the title, but we never really fully understand kind of hey, what. That's the name of the movie. <laughs> Uh, but I, I think it's great because when we do get to the end of the film, there's a lot more weight and uh, kind of prescience to what's happening uh, with this kind of dark, shadowy f- organization. And so I, I think it's uh, a very s- strong narrative device uh, and a way to build a a villain without ever putting a figurative villain there for us. Other than, you know, we've got these pawns in the game. Exactly. Uh, but we don't actually see the big bad. We just know that it's the big bad because of what they've orchestrated. And I think it's just an interesting uh, technique in creating that kind of conflict within the film. But as you said, I, I like kind of Meryl Streep here as kind of the uh, the the stand-in, the mm-hmm. uh, the avatar for Manchurian. And she does a great job. She She's so evil, and she's just having a great time, and you can tell. And I think one of the superior things about Meryl Streep's character compared to Angela Lansbury's character in the original is that Angela Lansbury's character, character is very much a red-baity, sort of a wife of Joseph McCarthy kind of character, and she's out to fight the communists, and that's what she's trying to do. But the whole time, she's secretly on the inside, this compu- communist sympathizer or secret agent uh, that's at work trying to uh, get them in power. And, and there is some sense in which her real motivation is to get her son this power and, get, and you know, these kind of things get power for herself. So power is a, a massive motivator beyond sort of political ideology. But Meryl Streep's character, she is at, uh, she definitely has the purpose of being trying to be a kingmaker. That's, that's really what she wants to do, and she wants to do that for her son. And she is okay with Manchurian Global. She doesn't have any, uh, you know, sort of uh, visceral sort of reactions against the more really visceral reactions pro she's sort of using them they're sort of using each other yeah. which I, I i tend to find to be a much more believable kind of plot as opposed to oh it turns out the biggest baiter against this particular group of people is actually a sympathizer for them and a planned so that you'd never see it coming i mean the, not that that thing never could or yeah. should uh, but could possibly but, occur but, but disparate interests aligning is more it's fundamentally more believable than a a, sing, a singular conspiracy yeah right? it, it's 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 Strange bedfellows is is what is much more feasible, I think. That and I just personally find it very troubling that the 1962 film is sort of taking Joseph McCarthy's side. It's yeah. like that particular reading of uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers mm-hmm. that uh, it, it is about the sort of Red Scare, and it is definitely very pro that sort of frightened, terrified kind of America that's trying to put together. I think there is a sense in which there is a frightened and terrified America that is trying to be uh, constructed as well in the remake, but I find it to be much more plausible in real-world terms as well uh, than what we were dealing with with the McCarthy scare, which again has turned out to be, you know, utterly sort of false and ridiculous. So the next question I have is this. In terms of uh, the critiques of capitalism and corporate culture, we've had two weeks in a row of this. We just did Robocop. And now we did the Manchurian Candidate without any sort of real connection to those kind of ideas. My question is simply this. This is a, this is a really sort of broad-ranging, uh, speculative, uh, general sort of view in terms of analysis. Which film does the better critique? I put you on the horns of a dilemma when you must choose. What uh, say you? I'm going to go ahead and jump in and say RoboCop. I, I think RoboCop is more effective uh, purely through the use of satire. I, I think... Um, what uh, 
I think it, you would be hard pressed to convince me that RoboCop is a dramatically more satisfying film than, than the Manchurian Candidate. Yes, uh, but. Uh, RoboCop is a much more effective film in terms of satiring and skewing uh, corporate culture uh, because it's steeped in it. Um, the argument could be made that um, Manchurian Candidate gets the, the specific politics skewing a little bit, skewering a little bit better. But uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say point RoboCop uh, on this debate. I think I'm going to agree with Dalton. I, I do think that that kind of over the top, on the nose presentation. Uh, in regards to capitalism works, and I think definitely coming in the late 80s, I think it's a lot more impactful uh, with what's going on. Um, the way that it's handled with the Manchurian candidate in this kind of very uh, subdued and nuanced manner, uh, at times there is this kind of element, I think, maybe of, of satire to it, but it's so real-worldy. That it doesn't really it doesn't quite land. Yeah, it it just feels like yeah, that's that's life. That's just what happens. Um, and so I I think the more scathing indictment is from RoboCop, and I think it's the more memorable indictment that will resonate and still point out those major flaws, uh, despite the toy line. What I will say is I think Manchurian Candidate could have been more successful if they leaned a, a touch more into what they almost start to lean into at one point, which is uh, an indictment of the military-industrial complex, which they, they sort of do lean into that a little bit, the um, the, the the way in which um, we have uh, people on both uh, sides of many issues uh, using up uh, poor people uh, and as cannon fodder for uh, global expansionism. Um, and, and that really sucks, man. Uh, um, but uh, I think what's more interesting is, you know, the ways in which uh, they send this rich, this rich white guy tries to screw up these, uh, these, uh, these capitalist plans by um, shirking off his Harvard education and joining the army. Uh, and instead they um, abuse, use, and kill a bunch of uh, people who probably had much more um, single choice reasons for uh, joining the army. And uh, use their bodies and their labor and their uh, feelings and their sanity uh, to prop up this rich white guy. Uh, and I, I think that aspect of it, I will say, that indictment of the the way in which uh, uh, we have a country that loves going to war and doesn't really like taking care of people after we've sanded off their edges enough that they can kill people. Um, and we don't really help them that much when they come back. And that's really a bummer. Uh, and I think that's something that the Manchurian candidate really does do quite well, more than it's... Uh, critique of capitalism. Okay, fair enough. Um, I, I tend to agree entirely, guys. Uh, I think the reason why RoboCop works so much better is because its use of humor is is a real way to sort of uh, needle oneself into a position where you can infect the thoughts of someone else. And really, for the most part, the Manchurian Candidate, uh, with one single uh, punch joke uh, aside, is not a funny movie. Um, there's very little humor to the film at all. And uh, so, you know, that being said, I think that's that that sort of makes it more effective. The Manchurian uh, candidate tends to convince those who are already convinced. It tends to be more of a reinforcement of some of those um, ideas that are there. And also, I think the Manchurian candidate, although both films end with some of the edifice still in place and perhaps, again, sort of that sub sublime object of ideology, which may or may not be able to be assailed, and that c keeping up those sort of edifices in which we can prevent people from trying to assail them, that the Manchurian candidate, when you finish watching the film, I think there's more or less a sense of despair, even though they won. 
happen. There's just a sense of, yeah, and this kind of stuff goes down all the time, and there's nothing that we can do about it, that our elections are bought and paid for, that Dean Stockwell is somewhere in a fedora smoking a cigar, making this stuff happen with an um, overgrown Game Boy called Ziggy. That's a weird sort of meta movement there with uh, Dean Stockwell. But nonetheless, <laughs> Quantum Leap, yes? Yeah, no, no. I knew what you were doing. It just kind of blew my mind that you actually did it. <laughs> uh, Fair I, enough. I deserve to be locked up in a room uh, but and fed nothing but ramen noodles. But my point is that it does sort of lead to a sense of despair and that there's really very little that can be done thereafter uh, in order to approach the film or, or, or to approach uh, sort of uh, political activism um, on one's own. I want to talk about moms for a minute. Because I think this movie is part of a problem. Um, so a boy's best friend is his mother, Arthur. Um, True story. Can you tell us a little bit about the nature of relationship between Meryl Streep and Lee Schreiber? I'm going to let you just go ahead and describe that to the listener first. They pumping. And they pumping hard. <laughs> <laughs> now. Oh, no. My the original book, the uh, the they, relationship, they pump in, <laughs> they pump in real hard. Oh no! So in the much to uh, much to uh, Leif Schreiber's chagrin. Yeah, he does not seem He's, to be about that. I guess when you're brainwashed, you can't really do much. Oh, uh, it's so sad and so gross. No means no. Yeah, no. I mean, the implication in the film is that. Uh, oh yeah. They they have a. Mm, not particularly consensual sexual relationship. Uh, in the book, is this it, it stated to be a fact? It's in such it is an incestuous relationship that I think uh, winds up in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. In the book, in the original film, they hint at it, but it's very light because there's of censorship a, and things of that nature. There's a kiss between Lansbury and uh, that protagonist, but it's, and it's not as intimate as the kiss, the almost kiss that we because we don't see the full kiss, but we yeah. see her going in. She gives him a, a motherly smooch and then and goes then in for a, an open mouth for kiss. a tongue kiss, and then we cut away. Uh, yeah, so Thankfully. yeah. It's uncomfortable. Oh boy, it's gross. So yeah, can we can we talk about the monstrous mother in cinema a little bit, and it, what does that do for this film in terms of analysis and problems we may have with or without the film? What do we think? Uh, it definitely seems to suggest that if a woman's telling you what to do, you can't trust her, which is kind of a gross message. Uh, that I- any woman who uh, is trying to tell you how to use your your white male power is uh, cucking you, uh, to use the common parlance. Uh, what a gross world we live in, guys. What a gross and disgusting world. Uh, what, a, what a time to be alive here at the end of all things. Um, that, that is the implication, I think. Now, I think the film realizes that that's the implication, and I think maybe it might be saying something about that point of view. Because um, the film does seem to have a pretty good head on its shoulders. I, I mean, it, I think it's working pretty well within uh, the parameters of the story to uh, elicit a larger commentary uh, based on uh, using the character's behavior in the film to um, have a larger commentary on the way we have a, the opinions we have in society at large. And I think that's probably what the film's trying to do. I could be wrong, but for me, that was the impact. Uh, I guess uh, without assigning intent, that that was how it worked for me. Fair enough. Um, I think the film does, to an extent, participate in uh, the uh, culture of the powerful woman as dangerous mm-hmm. and as a threat, that there is something very, very wrong with this picture. Now, it, it does uh, does some things to ameliorate this a little bit. We do have the character of Rosie, who does seem to be mindful and strong, even though we don't entirely know what she's all about. And she's definitely a vast improvement to the sort of just 
standard straight love interest played by Janet Lee uh, for Frank Sinatra in the original film. So there, there is some improvement there. But nonetheless, Meryl Streep is just a woman wanting power, wanting to use men in any way, and is someone to be afraid of. And there is definitely a strong vein of that continuing through culture in which women uh, who are powerful are immediately sort of distrusted, and it's just not okay. No, it's, it's very troubling. And again, I think within the confines of the film, it works, but... Uh it's it's problematic to be certain and um you know my reading is not the definitive reading i'm there are definitely readings that i think would invalidate mine so uh, i think you're right to problematize that aspect of the film so okay well there you go we, we've had a good conversation here i, I uh, want to pause at one thing before we, we yes we put a pin in this uh so the end of this film um Liev schreiber sacrifices himself uh to denzel washington to save the president-elect um, and in the process, uh, hugs his mother while doing it so that Denzel will take a shot in the back that will go through him and kill both him and Meryl Streep, uh, thereby uh, freeing this uh, administration from the clutches of Manchurian Global. Uh, and then Rosie, the FBI agent, and uh, Miguel Ferrer, um, uh, Denzel Washington's commanding officer in the U.S. Army, uh, frame a uh, – was he a – uh, a dead person. Yeah, but who he was a uh, some a sort Chechen of Chechen Chechen. That's what it was. Yeah, a Chechen some... Chechen national. Uh, they frame a dead Chechen uh, for the assassination, uh, and they they go off into the sunset. But wait, there's more. Denzel takes them to Kuwait and takes them to where they were brainwashed. In the final closing moments of the film, uh, we hear something. Uh, it's just kind of like a muffled, like chaotic sound that it seems like Denzel's hearing in the back corners of his ear. Uh, and then we cut to ba- we cut to black. Uh, so the implication potentially being that uh, Denzel can't trust his own mind anymore. Did he really save the day, or is he uh, is he currently in prison for uh, doing 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 the deed uh, and and killing the president of the United States and putting Manchurian Global in power? Uh, I don't know. Do, do we think this is a useless stinger that is just trying to ha- to have a pull one over on the audience before we go to credits? I don't think it's useless, but I don't think it matters which way it goes, if that makes sense. I think it's useful insofar as, like, there's always going to be this ambiguity, and I think I like that affirmation. And I like the idea that maybe he did the great noble thing, and Mm -hmm. then sort of the government uh, saw that in him and did what they could to exonerate him because, obviously, these actions were taken outside of his own control. And it could simply be his way of dealing with some of the madness that's going on inside of his head. But I think in the end of the day, it doesn't really matter which side it is. You know, is is, is Decker replicant? or not really that's that's interesting to, to puzzle on it's a koan you should puzzle on it but at the end i don't think you have to make a conclusion the answer is uh it's about the question not the answer yeah yeah um i i will say that uh, i i love uh, we mentioned this uh, vaguely uh, back in the review section i do love that musical cue when denzel kills Liev driver it is a pop punk ass 2000 and, uh, the the most 2004 music cue ever um, it is a music cue that belongs in a teen movie from the same year. Uh, and it happens when <laughs> Denzel Washington assassinates the capitalist pig dog that is going to hijack the White House. What the fuck? Yeah, it's <laughs> this pretty was wild. Hollywood. This was a major studio release. That is buck wild. 
Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a nutso movie. Um, oh my god! You did remind me of a question that I had sort of percolating in my yes. mind, uh, talking about its timeliness with 2004 and the War on Terror and, mm-hmm. and sort of that reception and how that's I probably hurt it. I think some. You know, uh, Manchurian Candidate 1962 is a year before the Kennedy assassination mm-hmm. and was very very well received. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that film would have done very well in 1964. Uh, I don't think it would have gotten made in 1964 yeah. if this movie True. had been in development. 1963, it would have gotten scrapped and never would have gotten made. Uh, the 2004 Jonathan Demme version would have been the original. That's what would have happened. I mean, it would have taken 30 years for this movie to be made. Yeah, without a doubt in my mind. So, does this film get a better rap made in the year 2000? I think this movie gets a better rap made in the year 2012. Correct. I'm, I I think it has to happen post 2008. I really do. I yeah. I think I think in 2000 politically, economically we're pretty comfortable for the most part, quote unquote, you know. Um uh I you know there's so much turmoil with the Bush election to begin with with Gore and then there are so many questions about Cheney and that relationship um and that's when I think s- there was so much kind of turmoil starting to bubble up and questions about you know parties and you know donors and you know things like that and then uh those kind of uh shadowy organizations funding uh candidates and things of that nature and those types of relationships and so i think all those things really had to play out well uh through up you know up through 2008 uh when we see the the change back uh, to the democratic white house and i think post 2008 you could put this movie in uh, and then I, I, there's going to be that blowback of, you know, it's it's a hard push against the Republicans. And, you know, there's going to be that kind of negative criticism about it. But I think it's going to find a better audience, a bigger audience. And I think it's going to be probably more well-received at that point than it would earlier in, in, in the decade. And we did, we did skip over uh, something we mentioned off air, um, as Arthur is mentioning that. I think the film wisely avoids... Uh, making political parties clear. Um, obviously, political ideologies are made fairly clear, uh, but party alignments are not. And I think that helps the film try to be more. Re- uh, it tries to help the film be more receptive uh, to to a larger audience. Just in that, it's it's not using. It's trying its best to not use words that people are going to have an immediate emotional response to. Uh, and I think that's wise, especially if you are. Making a politically challenging film, and you want to—if you your intent is not to, as Dustin mentioned earlier, uh, you know, speak to to you know the converted. Um, if you are trying to really tickle people's brains uh, near and far, uh, I, I think that's a wise choice uh, by and large. Yeah, I think so too. I, I do think perhaps it is a film made too soon. And uh, it would have been uh, well served. I do think the original film was almost made too late in terms of the Red Scare because I think we were kind of done with it. But it did sort of uh, strike a moment there in the early 60s. But had it gone any later, it would have been, again, as you say, unmakeable, unwatchable, unfilmable uh, because of the Kennedy assassination. So there's a little context uh, for you all, dear listener. Let's go to the point of the show where we make a verdict. We render a verdict regarding the Manchurian Candidate. This is Denzel, the first Denzel film of the Denzel. Marathon, and we must say, shell for trash, else or instead, Dalton, you go first. What do you say? Mm. You know what? I am going to go ahead and put it up with our uh, our always be watching Denzel prologue film, Devil in a Blue Dress. It's going to go right up on the shelf with Devil in a Blue Dress. It's great Denzel performance, an underseen Denzel performance, and I think 
throughout this marathon, I will be rating films shelfableness uh, on whether or not they are um, important in understanding Denzel as a performer. Uh, and I think this one is. I think it uses what we know about Denzel very effectively. It uses his charisma against him, and it makes us sad to see Denzel not to be, to be uh, put down. Uh, it does kind of similar things to Devil in a Blue Dress. It uses... Um, in uh, Devil in a Blue Dress, uh, race obviously being much more of a factor. Uh, the race in Manchurian Canada is much more uh, sneaky and insidious, uh, much as it honestly would be in a 2004 conversation. Um, and that is part of the reason. If this movie were made in 2010 you know, or 12, uh, race I think would have been a much more open topic uh, of conversation. I, I think the conversation about race has changed in a really big way in 10 years uh, or 15 years. Um, but um, I, I think it's a great Denzel performance for, for those same reasons uh, with Devil in a Blue Dress, where it's using his charisma in interesting ways. I, I think uh, this film does that as well. And, and again, he's just so good um, in this film. Uh, the, the, um, the man convinced he's losing his mind. I mean, he, he's a great. That's, that's the role, the protagonist of all great paranoid thrillers it is the guy who is chasing answers and not knowing whether or not he's on the right track or whether or not he's completely spiraling out of control. So I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, we shall shelf it to pair with it. I'm going to recommend 1990s Jacob's Ladder starring um, Tim Robbins, which I just watched for the first time today. It's a film I've been wanting to catch up on for a very long time. It is wacky as hell. Um, it is not as good as maturing Canada, I don't think, uh, but I, I really enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, it's it's something else. It's it. I cannot imagine I will ever watch it again. Uh, not that it's that disturbing, but it uh, it's just a little long. It's a two hour long horror movie, and I, I that that's always a dicey proposition. Um, but I, I feel like overall it works pretty well. Um, and I'm also going to recommend season three of the FX program. Uh, You're the worst. I actually believe it's on FXX now. Um, now, Dustin's got a look on his face going, what is this? You're the Worst is an anti-romantic comedy series. Uh, but I bring season three up specifically because it, uh, one of the major subplots is um, the character of Edgar on the series is a veteran struggling with a post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's his big subplot in season three is um, his struggles with his PTSD and his struggles with um, the Veterans Administration and trying to get adequate care. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just something that's, uh, been on my mind cause of that show lately. So I want to go ahead and give it some love. All right. Well, thanks very much for that. Mr. Dalton's What do you say? Arthur shelf or trash for the Manchurian candidate else or instead? I think I'm going to put it on the shelf. I like that Denzel performance a lot. I, and to Dalton's, uh, point to back him up, uh, the way that Demi utilizes Denzel's performance here, I think is just fantastic. I, I think it's definitely one of my top five. Denzel performances. I, I love everything he's doing here. I think it's great. And for that reason, I think you should see this film and, and check it out. Uh, to pair with it, I've got three films about assassination attempts. Um, all right. And I think they all pair very, very well uh, with this film for different reasons. Uh, the first is, of course, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much. Either version, because they're both Hitchcock and they both are great on their own uh, for different reasons, I think. Um, the next one is Christopher Walken in The Dead Zone, uh, the Stephen King adaptation yes. about a man who can see the future. And uh, he must decide if he's going to kill the president who could ruin the world. Um, I think it's a, a great work. Evil President Bartlett, played by Martin Sheen. Oh, Martin Sheen's the baddie. Yeah. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that at all. It, 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 it's the darkest timeline. Yeah, truly, it truly it is. Uh, uh, 
it's uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I love Christopher Walken so much. I think it's a great premise, and, and the book's really good too. So check out Dead Zone. Uh, but finally, uh, I've mentioned this movie a couple times. I think in the past because I love that the villain is so ingenious that he crafts a gun out of wood. Yes. Oh, baby. And so I've got to say, mm. in the line of fire, Woo. Clint Eastwood, John Malkovich, it's it's a good time to be had uh, as as uh, Clint has to uh, try to uh, overcome his past failures and make sure that the president doesn't get assassinated this time after letting that Kennedy thing slip by. Uh, and uh, Malkovich is just a great, uh, great villain. He's so fun. He's the best. He is. He's, he's absolutely, and I can't not forget that, that gun. It's one of the most clever ideas in my mind uh, as a plot point. So those are my three picks to go with the Manchurian candidate. Very, very Dustin, good. Sir. Dustin's looking at me with a face that says, please don't do a Malkovich impression. And don't I've, worry, I you can't. I know I can't. That's why I didn't do it. I've tried it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Okay. I, I can't do it. You know, you've tried others, and they don't work either. <laughs> That's not true. I've got some good ones. Okay, sometimes. I've got a couple. Okay. Uh, yeah, Malkovich is not there, though. <laughs> All righty. I am also going to say Shelf. I like this movie a lot, and I think it's good for Demi. I think it's also good for Denzel. I think it's also good for Meryl, and it's also good for Schreiber. I, there's so many reasons why you should have this movie on your shelf, and so I'm definitely going to recommend it for that. Um, I'm going to say in terms of pairings with this, I want to just talk about one film about memory and go back to Verhoeven from last week and say Total Recall. Nice. That if you double build this in Total Recall, you're going to have a very, very interesting Solid. bit of conversation Noise. thereafter. So those are my selections. Yes, sir. You know, one of the things we didn't really hit on is this is uh, this is one of his... Uh, we're going to do several of uh, Washington's teamings with different directors, and he's worked with Deme in the past, and we didn't mention that when he did Philadelphia. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Tom Hanks. Uh, That's right. So this is their second work together. and uh, Yeah, we, we are going to be visiting a lot of uh, Denzel's notable collaborations throughout this marathon. Because I think that says a lot about an actor, and uh, when they, uh, an actor and director work well together, it really adds to the story. Philadelphia is so. a great movie, too. To wit! Next week's film shall be the first team-up between Denzel and um, action auteur Tony Scott, and that is Crimson Tide, co-starring Gene Hackman. Definitely not The Hunt for Red October. <laughs> that is a different submarine <laughs> movie. The Hunt for Crimson October. It is on With Sean Stranger Connery. Red Tides. <laughs> das Boot. Da, das Boot-tober. Das Tide. Das, das Tide. <laughs> Crimson Das the hunt for red, the, the hunt for red <laughs> boot. Das Crimson. Um, das Hunt. Das Hunt uh, for geez. Crimson October. So, we're going to watch that film. We are not watching Das Boot. We're not <laughs> watching God, the it's hunt like for red. It's so long. It's so long. We are watching Crimson Tide Crimson starring <laughs> Das Crimson Peak starring Denzel Washington and Mia Washington. <laughs> All right. We're watching the Gene Hackman movie. That's what we're doing. It's a Denzel movie featuring Gene Hackman. (laughs) Enemy of the States. Damn it. That's Will Smith, you son of a bitch, and you know it. Uh, Good God almighty. Hey, guys, guess what? Movies are all about the conversation. Um, You keep watching. We're definitely going to keep talking, as you can clearly hear. And we'll see you all next time. Thank you for tuning into the good.
Good Trash Genre Cast, brought to you by the Good Trash Media Network. For all of our content and information, go to goodtrashmedia.com. Our intro music is composed by Arthur Gordon, with a little help from Junkie XL and Hans Zimmer and their Wonder Woman score. Our outro music is Fortunate Son, written by John Fogarty, performed by Mike LeJean. And when the band plays, hell to the chief love.